welcome to Grow Up, where we are healing the child within us while lovingly and respectfully raising the child that's in front of us. Are you ready? It's time to grow up. Welcome to this episode, everyone. I'm glad that you're here. I am your host, Amy, and let's dive in. I wanted to say thank you to those of you that reached out after the last episode about riding the waves of meltdowns and after hearing those um, stories that I shared about the latest meltdowns with my son and all that came along with it. Um, It seems like it was quite a relatable episode to a lot of you and I'm glad that it hopefully just gave you just a little peek into some of the things that we are dealing with and just a reminder that, you know, I'm no expert. I'm just here doing the parenting thing right alongside of you and raising a child whose brain is just a little bit different than others and um, just kind of shows you the things that are on our plate all the time and hopefully it helps you feel a little less alone and hopefully it can give you some insight into what you can try with your own children at home. So just glad that it resonated with everybody. And then after talking with people, I started to really think about kind of like the journey here, you know, um, I, some of the people that reached out were talking about similar struggles with their little ones and their children that are, you know, 18 months old or talking about even babies that, you know, are colicky or fussy, etc. And just maybe the way that they've lived in relation to the more high needs children that they're parenting. And it really got me thinking about our story and, you know, kind of everything that's transpired up until this moment. And I remember, you know, I was probably honestly a few months back at this point that I had some people reach out to me and and say that they would love to hear like my birth story and just like those early years that I reference quite a bit, um, but I've never really kind of gotten into. So I guess today that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of rewind the clock a little bit and go back and unpack the journey here. And um, it's a doozy. I'm not going to lie. It is um, something that I should just give multiple trigger warnings right now. Um, We had some issues with genetic testing and We're going to talk about, you know, touch on topics like abortion. We're going to touch on topics about the NICU and um, postpartum anxiety, um, colic, and and those kind of rough first moments and months, even first year um, with a baby. So if any of that is just kind of a touchy subject, any kind of birth trauma stuff that you don't want to listen to or relive, Um, I highly recommend maybe just skipping this episode or listening to it when you're in a better headspace and catching the next one, um, because it is going to go there and it's going to get a little bit heavy. So I just want you to be prepared because I know that there's many times in my life when I was in the thick of my anxiety or when I was fresh, you know, in this situation where I couldn't listen to, um, stories like this. So no hard feelings, do what you got to do. Um, take care of yourself, take care of your brain. I will catch you on the next episode. Um, For those of you listening, if something that I share strikes a chord, if you want to share your story to help the listeners along or to ask any questions or just for solidarity, remember I love hearing from you. Please reach out to me on Instagram at grow.up.ig or through email at thegrowuppod at gmail.com. 
So hopefully I can remember all these pieces. It's just been so long, I feel like, since I've sat down and really um, shared all the ins and outs of our, you know, birth story, pregnancy, everything. So it just, it seems like there's so much to remember, but I'm sure as I get going, my, my brain will kick right back in and remember all those pieces. Cause somewhere along the lines, it's I'm sure buried deep down inside. Um, you know, if you've been listening for a while that I'm a huge advocate for therapy and, you know, things that I work on in therapy there, I've seemed to have some kind of block that I'm working through with like actually feeling like truly feeling my emotions. I feel a lot of times what I do is I will mentally kind of work through things instead of actually allowing my body and my, you know, emotions to come out, everything to be felt. So my therapist tells me, you don't feel your emotions, you think your emotions. And you know what? She's right. And she's right about a lot. I have a pretty uh, awesome little gem of a, of a therapist. And she's definitely helped me process, you know, the way that I... I kind of stuff stuff down inside. So I'm saying this because I'm sure um, you might notice that pattern as I work through this story. So my son is four and a half. Um, I got pregnant. It was right around Christmas time of 2016 because I had him in 2017. Um, we were very lucky. I We were able to get pregnant very quickly um, when we were actually, you know, charting and doing that type of thing. So we got pregnant very fast and um, it was just kind of, you know, full speed ahead at that point. Um, I had a pretty relatively easy pregnancy at the beginning. So first trimester, I mean, I felt a little bit nauseous, like for maybe a week, but I mean, I never had morning sickness really. Um, I know those of you out there who did probably want to jump through your speaker and strangle me. And I understand, I know that it is very difficult. And I mean, honestly, I absolutely hate throwing up, um, or seeing it or cleaning it or any of those things with like a vengeance. So yeah, I don't know if my body just willed me to like not be that way, but I, yeah, thank God I didn't have to tackle that problem because I don't know how I would have done with that. Um, Anyway, so early, early weeks were good to go. We went in, I don't know, probably around like five weeks or something. Is that normal to, um, to confirm pregnancy with like a, an ultrasound? And um, we were, you know, talked to the nurse about all the different options with like genetic testing and things like that and finding out the, you know, um, sex of the baby, things like that if we wanted to. Um, what's funny is, and this will keep coming up in the story, my son was breech, um, which means like butt down instead of head down, um, literally since the first ultrasound to confirm that he was even in there, <laughs> um, which is comical because again, it will come up later. But so, yeah, so we go in, we have the ultrasound, we talk to the nurse or whatever, and, um, or might have been the other way around. Maybe like we didn't talk, did the ultrasound right away, but we talked to the nurse and then came back or I don't remember. It's all foggy. But in those early weeks, um, that all went down. 
we decided that we did want to go ahead and do the two-part genetic testing. Now, mind you, it's been nearly five years since I was pregnant, so I'm sure things are different now. Um, but at the time, there's a few different options for genetic testing. Genetic testing is something that will or can, I guess, doesn't always, it's not conclusive and it's not always accurate, um, will tell you about your, you know, whether your baby's healthy in terms of things like, you know, Down syndrome or skeletal dysplasia or, um, you know, trisomy or trisomy or however you say it, like 13 or um, all those different things, those things that genetically you could be dealing with with your child. So it will kind of give you a ballpark into that or an insight into that, especially if it's something that runs in your family and that you're, you know, concerned about or, or wondering if um, your child could have something like that. So for my husband and I, we weren't really concerned per se. It was more of like, um, and I hear a lot of people say this, and we were on the same, under the same idea that like, you know, if we had a child with special needs in that way, we would just want to be the most prepared that we could be, that we wanted to make sure we had all the, you know, facts and the the resources lined up and the doctors lined up or, you know, just the special care ready to go if that was going to be what was on our journey. So we're good to go. We're cruising right along. Um, we get into the, was it second trimester yet? I don't remember. This stuff is so foggy. For those of you that, you know, have had a, kids multiple times, you might be better at this stuff. But yeah, for me, I only have the one story to tell. And so it's kind of all foggy. Anyway, uh, we do the first part of the genetic testing where they measured the, um, it's called a nuchal fold. It's like at the back of the baby's neck. So where like their brainstem would be kind of, um, and you get blood work done at the same time. So the blood work they then, you know, kind of hold on to, and then they compare it to your second trimester or second round of whenever that is, um, blood work. So just kind of to like contrast and compare the two. And I guess something in that will then, you know, show if there's a reason for concern. So we get that done. We get the first one done, the nuchal fold thing. There's no thickening in the back of his neck, which is a good thing. And we get the blood work done and yeah, we're just cruising right along. Um, then comes the second part of the genetic testing. So on a different round, same thing. We go in, we get, you know, the blood work and, um, you know, just doing our regular scans. Everything's good. It's kind of comical because on every single ultrasound, like literally every single one, we were told, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my pregnancy I was told by people that were monitoring him, whether it was his heart rate or his movement or his, you know, ultrasound, how active my son was, which like I talk about in pretty much every episode, he's a sensory seeker. He is a human firework. He is just the king of energy and movement. And it is comical that that is what was picked up on even like, you know, he was how many weeks as a fetus and people were like, this child is active. Not only was he active, but he was, um, very stubborn, like was never very cooperative for the ultrasounds. And it was, it was quite funny. Now that I know him, I'm like, oh my gosh, I sh should have seen these red flags, which I always tell people who are pregnant, like definitely keep a little journal or something and like, kind of like 
compare back notes, you know, because I find that a lot of the things that I felt were experienced or moods or foods that I wanted, things like that in utero, like it's him. It's him now. It's like the way he behaves or his demeanors or his taste profiles. Like it's, it's just very, very interesting to me. So whether or not there's something to that, we'll never know. But I think it's very, very funny. So anyway, we go in for the second round of blood work, the genetic testing, blah, blah, blah. Everything's good to go. The doctor says, you know, everything's good. You know, basically no news is good news. If you, if you don't hear from me, everything's normal, you know, cool. So we move on the next day, you know, next morning I'm sleeping, I'm working, you know, and I get woken up by a phone call very first thing in the morning. I think it was like, I don't know, seven something. And I look down, I'm like, who is calling me at this ungodly hour? I'm not or ever will be a morning person. And I look down and it is my OB's office. And I instantly, like my stomach drops, like I'm on a roller coaster and I'm like, shit. Cause his exact words were, you won't hear back from me. You know, the only time I'll get in touch with you is if, if something's wrong, you know? And I say wrong loosely, um, I mean, I'll get into that too, but like, yeah, it's not that somebody with differences is wrong or bad, but obviously the ideal or the fantasy is that you have a perfectly healthy baby with no cause for alarm, no extra needs, no extra medical issues. Like, obviously that's what everyone goes into it thinking. So when I say things like wrong or, you know, that type of thing, that's what I'm alluding to. So I pick up the phone and it is the doctor. And he is on the phone to tell me that the genetic testing has come back, that we have a heightened risk for Down syndrome with my child. And I don't know. I don't know if it's like, I, I want to knock on wood when I say this. Um, I have in my life not really had a lot of those like phone calls that like everything changes in an instant. Like for me, when I think of those, I think of like major devastating news. And a lot of that would be like death or illness or something. Well, for like my family, I feel like, you know, the losses we've had have been kind of prolonged. So it hasn't really been like, oh my gosh, get to the hospital right now. Like this is going on. Like it hasn't really been like that um, or news like this. And so it was my first real experience or maybe just as an adult that I can remember of feeling like, he's like talking and telling me something and it was like so surreal because I'm like wait what and, and um it was just like crushing it and, and of course like I think because of the way I was talking on the phone I woke my husband up next to me and he's kind of looking at me like who is this like what's going on um and basically he said that we had like a 50 percent chance um and what I've learned and I don't know maybe those of you out there with more experience than I do I might get this wrong but from my understanding it wasn't 50 50 that my child had down syndrome it was 50 50 that the climate in my body so my personal like you know makeup or whatever blood at that moment had the had a 50 percent chance of producing a child with down syndrome if that makes sense so it wasn't as cut and dry as like there's a 50% chance your kid has it. It's like there's a 50% chance that you could have this kind of climate that would possibly result in type thing. 
So then I'm on the phone at like, you know, seven in the morning, like just got woken up for that. And it was completely, you know, course altering and um, shocking, which I don't know, which is like another conversation. Like, why was it shocking? I don't know. Like I went into the genetic testing knowing that there was an option of that. I knew that we would be getting answers. So why not me? You know, but I think none of us and I think those of you who maybe have had that same testing done, like you just don't think it's going to be you. I can't really describe it. I don't I mean, obviously, but like it just was very, very surreal. Um, And so then I'm asking like options, you know, and basically my options at that moment were amniocentesis, which is where they stick like a long needle in and extract fluid from like the sac around the baby which is high risk and high risk of miscarriage, I should say, at that moment because he was early on in the pregnancy. Now, if you do an amnio, from what I understand, later in the pregnancy, you could just be like, you could not just, I shouldn't say just, but you would be propelled into like early labor versus maybe um, miscarriage. But at an earlier gestation, it would be more of like a miscarriage situation if something were to go wrong. They were much riskier, apparently, back in the day, whereas, like, now they're um, done where you can, like, kind of watch the needle go in on a camera and things like that with an ultrasound or whatever. Um, So there's that option, which I didn't like the sound of. Um, The option of doing nothing, which I also, my, my control freak nature was like, I don't like the sound of that either. Um, You could terminate pregnancy, which would be an abortion. Um that, you know, you decided that just the the risk alone was enough to just not go through with things, which, you know, also didn't sound great to us. Um, And the last uh, testing that they could do was something with chromosomes. So where the chromosomes would be extracted from the mother's blood. So I would go in for blood work, just routine blood work, nothing fancy. And then it would get sent off. You'd have to have it done on a Friday because it had to be fresh to send all the way to California. Because at the time, that's where the test was located or where they were doing it. It was a very new technology at the time. And they would send your blood out to um, this lab. And then they would look into the chromosomes of the blood. It can it can tell you a little bit about other genetic stuff, but in the case of a Down syndrome diagnosis, it would be um, 100%, you know, accurate because Down syndrome is um, evident when a child has three chromosomes on, I forget which number it is, um, instead of two. So if there's an extra um, chromosome in the blood, you then know that the... Um, the child has Down syndrome because obviously I do not. No, well, I shouldn't say obviously. If you know what I like, you, just in talking to me, listening to the podcast, I do not have Down syndrome. So, um, if they took blood from me and there was extra chromosomes in it, then it would have to be the fetus that I was carrying. So, oh, and that one wasn't covered by insurance, and it was you know I don't even remember. I think it was like eight hundred dollars or something crazy that we were like, oh, okay, good to know. So we get off the phone and, you know, obviously like a big bomb went off and it was like, what do we do? You know, um, and it, it just propels you into this whole whirlwind of thought, right? Because it's like weighing out all these pros and cons of like the safety of your baby, weighing out the pros and cons of the life of your baby and the kind of life that you want for your baby or the kind of life that they would want for themselves potentially that you have no idea of measuring 
Um, there just, it just feels like the weight of the world is in your hands. Um, and I know for us, it wasn't, it wasn't like this easy call, you know, cause we're obviously like, well, we want to, we want to test further. Um, but then the question became, well, what if we get this information back and we find out that, you know, he does have Down syndrome and then what is the call, you know? And that's a whole other weird thing, because if we never did genetic testing and our son was born with Down syndrome, um, you know, okay. But, like, then if you're finding out in advance, like, do you do something? It just, it was just, like, the weirdest thing. And this is not throwing any, like, you know, labels of better or worse onto whether someone's born with special needs or not. It's just whether or not it was something that we felt that we were capable of handling, something that we felt our relationship could withstand, something that we felt financially we could do. Um, because the things, you know, in researching, so then we get propelled into all this research, you know, it's like a lot of children with Down syndrome have other comorbidities. So they have like heart, you know, issues or, you know, things like that, that they need specialists and specialty medicine for. And um, yeah, you just think like, what kind of life is this going to be? And, and to be honest, I didn't have a lot of firsthand experience with Down syndrome. I really didn't. And I, I mean, I've known of people or seen families out but I didn't really know a whole lot and so now we're just like on this whole quest for you know information and all this stuff so it was just really a very I don't stressful I guess but um just kind of like a wild you know blow that we were just like wait I'm sorry what you know like come again so we decided to go through with the chromosomal you know blood test or whatever so I go in for blood work and talk about like a weird helpless feeling because like you're hoping for the easiest route the smoothest route for your child and like I felt like I wanted to be like doing something to like you know but I could do nothing I could just go in and have them take the blood that was already out of my body and it just felt weird because it felt like I wanted so desperately for a certain outcome that they would tell me everything was, you know, on the up and up and we didn't have this on our plate and I had no control. It just is what it, you know, it was what it was. It was like, all right, well, let's just find out. And then in the meantime, we had to wait two weeks for that result. So in that two weeks, it's funny, I can kind of relate it to like those of you with children, when you're waiting to find out if you're pregnant or not, they call it like the two week wait, right? Like, you think you're pregnant, but like you can't, it doesn't really show up on tests for like, a, for like two weeks or so. And it's kind of like that similar two week wait of like the, you know, the future of your journey kind of is like in limbo, right? Where you're hoping for one thing or maybe not hoping for one thing or whatever it is. And you're just kind of like, well, I guess we just wait, you know? And in the meantime, my husband and I start having really tough conversations. You know, we both are pro-choice and support women's right to choose whether they want to be pregnant or have a baby. And it's just a really interesting topic because I never saw myself being in that position, you know, and especially at this stage of my life where I'm, you know, pregnant with a baby that was planned for with a man that I love and who is going to be a wonderful father. It's my husband. And you know, it just was like, it just seems so odd to be 
sitting down and having these hard conversations about terminating a pregnancy that you so desperately wanted. Um, and we didn't even know that that was going to be the option, but we had to consider everything. What if this comes back and we hear this news? And, you know, my thought was like, can we afford that? I don't want to just be placing my child in in care of someone else all the time. Like, I want to be there with my child. And can we afford care for this child if one of us, you know, has to stay home because um, we're too you know, income family and it needs to be that way for, you know, our lifestyle. And, um, you know, just like, what does that look like, you know, logistically, not just like in a perfect world where like, oh, we'll figure it out and everything's wonderful. But like, if I'm going to bring this special needs baby into the world and I know that going into it, then like, is that the responsible choice? Can we really provide, you know, the quality of life that this little child deserves, right? So it wasn't just like, you know, easy. It wasn't just like, oh, this is what we'll do or this, you know, whatever. It was a very difficult conversation. And to be honest, we never came up with a solution. We never came up with an answer to that question. It was just on the table and it was something that we were working through in real time. And it it was really, really difficult. It was a very sobering, you know, conversation to have, you know, especially when it was just such a time of excitement in our lives. This was, this was, I know that for a fact that this was all between like, I think week like 17 and 19, something like that, right before the anatomy scan can be done. And so we're just, you know, we're on pins and needles. And I told my husband, I said, listen, if we decide to terminate, you know, if that ends up being the route we go, I don't know that I could ever get pregnant again purposefully and, and bring another baby into the world because I would always have that like guilt of feeling like, and this is just me personally, this is not projecting on anyone else's decisions or what you've done in your life. But for me, I remember contemplating, would I feel guilty if I went through a pregnancy of a quote, healthy, normal, you know, quote unquote baby and allowed that pregnancy to term, but decided to terminate this pregnancy that was more challenging, this, you know, child that would have been medically more challenging. And that was something that I didn't know. I mean, I could have made that call, but I didn't know that I would have been able to have children in the future without a great deal of shame um, day in and day out, just looking at my child, if that makes any sense. So that was like another topic of conversation. Um, so flash forward, we get the phone call, you know, two weeks later I remember, I'll never forget, I was sitting in front of my mirror in my in our bedroom getting ready for work. I was like doing my makeup and listening to my music and I was doing my eyeliner. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember when I talked on the phone, like holding the eyeliner in my hand, which is funny. It's so weird how your brain does that, right? We like, it's like a little photograph in time. But anyway, so I'm doing that and um, God, I don't know, this is already getting me emotional, guys. <laughs> Oh, um, I get a phone call from whoever, I forget now, and they're calling to talk about the results of the test. And they call and they tell us that he it does not have Down syndrome. And I just lost it. I started sobbing and I can't tell you the... Um, I don't know, like just that moment was so profound in my life. It was because for two weeks up until that point, just the, the conversations we had had to have, 
and all the different, you know, things we had, the scenarios we'd run through in our head and, and just the stress of it all and that we didn't have a clear cut decision. And I wasn't really ready for that phone call because I wasn't ready to hear the outcome. And for those two weeks, I was also, this is so, it sounds terrible or sounds, I don't even know what it sounds like. It doesn't even matter because it's the truth. I was started trying to like emotionally detach from my child that I, you know, that I, I was pregnant with because I felt like I didn't want to get so, you know, I, I didn't want to allow myself to like be so excited and so wrapped up if I knew that this is something that we weren't going to choose to do. And again, I didn't know that that was our choice, but I was afraid. I was like in fear of getting too attached and then having that being taken away. So for those two weeks, I really felt myself kind of like pulling back from excitement. And like, I remember at work, just like feeling like I was like downplaying my pregnancy and just like not really wanting to talk to clients about it. Because that's like a whole nother thing, which if you work with clients or, you know, people that know you well, you kind of understand that like you get to know your people and um, you just share a lot of yourself with clientele and things like that. And it was a really hard time because I wasn't talking about it with anybody. I told I think I just told my sister and my parents. I think that was it. I don't even remember if I told them. I, I can't even remember. Because um, it was just something that like I just felt like I wasn't even ready to say out loud, if that makes sense. And again, it's nothing, it's not better or worse. I mean, I see these people, parents and children with special needs and parents with special needs children. And I just, the strength and the um, grace and the... I don't even know, power. And they're just so incredible to me because I had, a, you know, a sliver of that discussion. And it was like, I felt like I didn't, I couldn't even handle it. So anyway, so we find out that he does not have Down syndrome. And it's conclusive, like I said, because of the chromosome. And I just... I mean, I remember, I think I had to call my husband, but I just was sobbing. And I told him, like, it was, like, the equivalent of, like, feeling like I just, like, found out I won a million dollars or something. Like, it was just, like, like, I felt like all these worries were just, like, instantly lifted because I didn't have to make that hard call. You know, I didn't have to think about that anymore. I knew that, and not that I knew that he was going to be healthy, because I didn't know that, but I knew that that wasn't going to be a struggle that we had. And after having to really look into the ins and outs of what that lifestyle would look like with research, um, it just felt like the biggest weight lifted. I can't even describe it. And ironically, um, right after we found that out, like literally right after, I think it was like maybe five minutes later, I got a call from a good friend of mine who I'm not a big phone person. So like, I don't talk a lot on the phone. <laughs> Um, I'm definitely a texter and I got a phone call from my friend and I was like, why is she calling me? And especially at this point, it was like, you know, it was like before nine o'clock in the morning too. So I'm like, what could possibly be going on? Well, I pick it up and it was my friend on the other side that was clearly not, it was like not good news, you know? And I was like, what's going on? And my friend was like en route to the airport to catch a flight down to be with her sister. Her sister and I, this is so weird because she's a very close friend of mine. Her sister and I had the exact same due date with my pregnancy and her pregnancy. 
and we, I remember like we had just seen each other and we were kind of laughing about it like oh my gosh we're gonna do it on the same day and how cool and this and that and same thing that sister was um you know this baby was planned for and you know with her partner and they were planning names and they had a baby shower date and all the things you know she was um nearly halfway through her pregnancy it was like 19 weeks at that point and my friend calls me to tell me that she's flying down to florida to be with her sister because her sister just had their anatomy scan so the anatomy scan for those of you that have never had that or don't know what i'm talking about it's like the scan where your baby is far enough along that they look less like a little shrimp and more like an actual human and you can start to measure their bones and the anatomy of their body to make sure things are laid out properly that like the heart is beating properly the kidneys are working the brain you know all that kind of stuff just to make sure that like halfway through the pregnancy that the organs are there, they're growing, the body's growing properly in the correct proportions. Um, you can find out the the sex of the baby at that appointment um, conclusively from picture, you know, just from the ultrasound, etc. It's a very big deal because it's like kind of like they kind of base a lot around that. Well, her sister just had the anatomy scan and her, the baby's brain was not growing. And her sister was having the same conversation that my husband and I had just had for the last two weeks about what to do because with the circumstances for her baby, that baby was not, um, viable. That baby was either, I mean, she could have carried a term, but that baby was 100% had no chance of life. So her options were to terminate her son who had a name and had a um, baby shower and had, you know, tons of love and all these things, her first baby, um, or carry to term with a growing belly. They said she probably would feel kicks and things like that because it just like kind of is the way things go, even if the brain is not there, not developing. So having experiences like you're pregnant for nine months, which also, may I add, can be extremely dangerous to the mother because things like preeclampsia, birth can be very dangerous. And then she would give birth to a baby that would die in her arms. And that's what she was left with. And my friend was flying down there to be with her sister to help support her in making that decision. And ultimately, they decided to terminate. And I'm not saying this for any other reason than I was pro-choice before pregnancy. I was pro-choice during my pregnancy. I was considering, you know, termination and what that looked like for myself and my family for whatever reasons we had decided. And again, we never came to that conclusion. And here's another circumstance where I feel like I just, you know, was on top of the world with my results. And then to get a phone call directly after that from somebody that I love so dearly and to hear the pain and the issues that they were going through. Um, it just was like the worst polarity. The It just it just was it made me sick. It broke my heart. I, there was there's nothing happy about it. And it just solidified that pro-choice decision because there's no winners there you know the mental anguish and the emotional toll that's going to take on that person is a lifelong thing and it just was like 
so much, you know. Um, so the next week I had my anatomy scan. So I'm going in feeling on top of the world, knowing that like, you know, the things that were found in my genetic testing are not true. Come to find out that genetic testing at that time, I don't know how it is now, was extremely unreliable. And had I known that then, I wouldn't have done it. But, you know, we happen to be one of those kind of like false positives. And I found out there's so many people that terminate because of false positives. And then turns out nothing was wrong. And some days, like when I look at my son now and I just am like, oh, my God, it like makes me feel physically ill because I'm like, how could I, you know, it's just it's like, oh, my God, it's just scary to think of like the outcome that could have happened had we not gone with that test or I don't know. I don't know. It just is too much. So we go into the anatomy scan and I'm feeling on top of the world and we go through and they're like, you know, it's a boy, they tell us. And we're like, you know, excited about that. And she's like, you know, the tech is just, you know, walking us through everything and showing us things and blah, blah, blah. So we go and we're waiting to talk to the doctor afterward and he comes in. Oh, and here's the best part. So <laughs> my son was going crazy during that um, ultrasound. They he would not cooperate at all. We actually ended up running out of time with the window that we had allotted for the ultrasound because she could not get like clear pictures of everything because he was moving around so much. Um, and then after he was done moving around so much, they, um, he like rolled over and like was in a weird spot and they could not get any pictures and he would not move. <laughs> oh, so stubborn. I should have known. Anyway. So, um, we already knew that we were going to have to come back to complete the ultrasound pictures because it was important, even though they knew that, like, the things in question looked good, like his spine and things like that. They wanted to have, like, a picture of it on file. So we knew that we were going to have to come back for, like, a second round of ultrasound pictures. So the doctor comes in and instantly we're like, what's going on? Because you can kind of tell that he's going to deliver some news and we're like, what? And he comes in to tell us that our child is in the less than 10th percentile growth-wise and that he suspects interuterine growth restriction, which is where, like, my, you know, uterus size is, like, restricting the growth of the baby, I guess. And says, you know, this is something that we do see commonly in Down syndrome, but we know that that is not the case for you because you just rolled it out. So his next directions were that we need to go over to the hospital for more ultrasound testing um, and get like the, um, why can't I think of the name of it right now? Like the, oh God, like a special care or I can't even think of it right now. It's like I'm drawing a blank. Um, we're going to be in, you know, special counseling basically like um, intensive ultrasounds to see why our child is measuring so small and because again he's like I don't know but usually you know at the size that he was measuring there's usually like some kind of component there that we need to get figured out so as soon as we dodged the down syndrome now we're on to something else so we end up eventually I think it was like that same week over in the, you know, special, special area of the hospital where they deal with, you know, all these, you know, oh, high risk. Hello, Amy. High risk. High risk ultrasounds. So now we're high risk. So we go over to the high risk place 
and we're doing ultrasounds over there. So the first day we go in, we get our ultrasounds over there. They confirm that, yes, he is measuring small. They measure all the bones. They measure all the stuff. And it turns out that his head and his body is measuring normal. And the long bones of his arms and legs are measuring small, some of which we're measuring in the less than one percentile. Okay. So what the fuck does that mean, right? Um, and ironically, I had a client who had had very similar stuff going on and she was like telling me about different things and she's like, oh, this one tech is so amazing. Like that's the one that you want if you get one, like da, da, da. And so a part of me wanted to be like, oh, this tech must have measured wrong, you know? But the funny thing was we had the tech that she raved about and she had had three high risk pregnancies. And, um... So in my mind, I was like, yeah, I think that this stuff, this measuring is pretty accurate, which was hard because I was trying so hard to like not, you know, like just make it right. But it just was hard. So anyway, so we're hearing all this and then they're like, you know, we think you should meet with a genetic counselor. So we're like, what in the hell? You know, like we're just like, what is going on? So then we have to meet with genetic counselor at the high risk ward and they're talking about all kinds of different stuff. And they basically say to us, the way we're, he's measuring right now is indicating skeletal dysplasia. And we're like, uh, what? And they say to us, like, I think the next sentence was, but we don't believe it's the fatal kind. And my, I'm just like, I'm sorry. Like, everything's a blur. Like, you don't believe it's the fatal kind? Like, cool, I guess that's good. Like, what are you saying to me? So skeletal dysplasia is obviously an abnormality of the skeleton. And there's hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of kinds. <laughs> um, and they said, you know, his, his head and his body are measuring normal. His arms and legs are measuring short. So it's mostly looking like achondroplasia. Achondroplasia to like the lay person, like to any civilian, is dwarfism. Meaning that he would be you know, short, a little person and not terminal, not, you know, doesn't affect. I mean, there's, I guess, some medical things that would come along with that. But like, you know, in terms of him being, you know, mentally healthy and things like that. So now we're hearing that, you know, our baby most likely has dwarfism and not only is it just on the table, but because of some of the arms and legs measurements, it was like looking pretty um, consistent with people that do. So then the options were, you know, pretty much nothing. I mean, it was like, we're going to do growth ultrasounds on you every four weeks to see how the head and body in relation to the legs and arms keep growing. If the head and body keep growing and the arms and legs are not growing anymore, then that almost certainly you know, confirms that that's what he has. If the arms and legs grow in proportion, even as they are right now, if they're small in relation to the head and chest or abdomen, um, then that would indicate that he might not have it. They also look for things like the layout of their skull. Um, the lumbar spine can show some signs of it. The hip sockets can show signs of it, which is hilarious. I could tell you, like, I had probably a five-minute in-depth ultrasound done on my fetus's hip sockets. <laughs> oh, and, the, like, the angles at which they are and all these freaking things. Like, you guys, it was just, it was wild. I'm just like, what is happening? 
So anyway, so that all goes down and they basically tell us there's no way of confirming it. You can do an amniocentesis. It, and again, here we are back with the amnio. Um, but most likely it could not tell you the kind because there are hundreds upon hundreds. It could confirm that there's a dysplasia, but it wouldn't tell you whether or not he has achondroplasia. So the only thing that we can do is basically do these growth scans, make our best guess scientifically judging on how he's looking on these scans, and then you give birth and you find out for sure. So for the rest of our pregnancy, we would, you know, be wondering if our child was going to be born with achondroplasia, also known as dwarfism. We probably got about three or four scans deep, and then they kind of like told us that we didn't need to be coming back to high needs anymore. They kind of had ruled out that although his arms and legs were measuring short, they were measuring in the same ratio to the head and chest, and that they seemed to be growing, and that, you know, there's still, it's still a possibility, but it was looking like less of a possibility. So there we were, you know, I'm going to say dodging bullet too, even though, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with having dwarfism or having Down syndrome. It just, you know, you just want a baby that has the least amount of needs necessary in the medical realm. So there's that. Um, and it was just a lot. You know, we were going in for these ultrasounds and I remember saying to them, because I thought they had my due date wrong. I thought they had me due earlier than what I thought I should have been due. Like I thought he was younger than what they had me at because I knew you know we had taken a, a test and an ovulation test while we got pregnant and I, I'd known the window in which we got pregnant and so um, but they basically agreed that like that's a possibility and actually the testing would have made more sense for a child with his gestation that I had like for the um, calculations that I had it would have made more sense and it wouldn't have been alarming but because they had him a week earlier it was alarming because he shouldn't have been that small, if that makes sense. So we actually was measuring more along the timeline that I had, which was the accurate timeline. But they also told me they already had it, you know, this is the due date and we don't really change them unless there's something really significant. So I just was kind of like, okay, he's probably not on the right date. And that's another reason why this is looking like this. But we didn't really have any answers. Okay, fine. So flash forward, we're, you know, going through the pregnancy we get into the third trimester and I feel like all hell breaks loose. I've been battling really crazy carpal tunnel. Shout out to anyone who had pregnancy related carpal tunnel because it is the fucking worst, especially when you work with your hands. Um, I remember on my last day of work, I like was doing an updo for a bride and I couldn't even feel the pins. Like I could only use my eyes to see if I was like holding the pins. I was like icing my arms and hands between every single client. I was not blow drying my clients anymore. I had my assistant doing that. It was just a hot mess. I was, it was terrible. My hands were in so much pain. Um, easily the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. And that's including childbirth. <laughs> so it says a lot. Um, then, you know, we go into the third trimester and uh, we end up in, a, we had a car accident. Someone like T-boned us on my side. That was a fun time. Um, everything was fine, but we had to go to the hospital for that. And then we, I was, um, all of a sudden had high blood pressure and I'd been feeling kind of funky for a while. And I knew that I was getting really swollen and everyone just kind of kept writing it off to like being pregnant. And I just remember thinking like, this just does not feel right. Um, but come like June, it was on their radar and they were like, okay, it looks like you got high blood pressure, blah, 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 blah. We'll keep an eye on it. And then look out for these symptoms. So 
it got pretty bad. I They were, like, trying to get me to go down to four-hour work days and not be on my feet and all this stuff. And the week that we had decided four-hour work days were on the, you know, horizon the next week, I had had my baby shower, and I came home from my baby shower, and I was having all the symptoms they told me to, like, call the doctor about. Like, it was an emergency. Like, blurry vision, um, just, like, the headache chest pain, you know, swelling, major swelling that wouldn't go down, blood pressure that wouldn't go down, that kind of stuff. So I go back into the doctor. Of course, I didn't go that night because I'm a stubborn idiot, which is really stupid now that I know more. Um, But yeah, I went the next morning. And when I got there, they basically said to me, they took my blood pressure. It was high. They tried to get it to go down. It wouldn't go down. They said, you have to go over to triage because you might be having a baby today. That was June, the like maybe the last week of July, and I wasn't due with him until Labor Day weekend, like September 5th. And I was like, shit, I can't have a baby. And all the stuff for the baby was in my front room in boxes. Like, I was like, I'm sorry, what? No. So they tell me, you know, you're going in to have this baby, and I'm, like, calling my mom and sister, like, uh, can someone go, like, assemble our crib or, like, anything at this point because we have nothing um uh, can someone like assemble and bring the like you know car seat so I can leave possibly with said baby um so we go in and I end up not having to have the baby which was wonderful um upon further testing they got my blood pressure to come down they tested me for protein in my urine which would have indicated preeclampsia which was not the case so okay cool so I get to go home but now I'm on full bed rest um they said it was moderate so I could do like you know a couple things a day get up and walk around or you know, go drive and do one errand, like go into CVS for something or, you know, whatever. And then I had to go home. So now I'm off work for six weeks um, and I'm a hairstylist, so I don't get paid unless I'm working. So now I am off work for an unforeseen six weeks, just canceled on all my clients, which to be honest, my body was done and I should have been listening better, but I wasn't. So I guess the universe has a funny way of making that happen. Um, I'm on bed rest. I'm not making any money. It was pretty terrible. It was super freaking hot. Um, especially being nine months pregnant or eight months pregnant or whatever. 10 out of 10 do not recommend being super pregnant in the summer. And, uh, yeah. So six weeks of that, they tell me I have to give birth at 37 weeks, which remind you, it was more like 36 weeks, but we're going off of their timeline. So 37 weeks. Every single ultrasound from when we confirmed pregnancy, my son was breech. Every single one. So when we go in there, you know, toward the end, she's like, he's still breech. You know, I can manually, like, yes, wrap your head around that, manually reach in and spin that baby. And I'm like, the hell you will. (laughs) So I was like, no, thank you. I do not want that done. Um, I actually, in that moment, said to her, could we just schedule a C-section? So don't come for me. I know some people do the non-medicated thing and sometimes I'm the crunchy granola mom, but you know, in this moment I had had so many crazy tests up until that point that I didn't want any more unknown. I was like, what if you spin this baby and something else happens? What if I go into, you know, you induce me because I have to go in at 37 weeks to have this baby now because of my blood pressure being so high. They're still checking me for preeclampsia all the time, things like that. 
um, claiming that I don't have it. But uh, I mean, looking back, I'm like pretty certain that I did, even though they said there was no protein in my urine. But I know that you can have it without that. Anyways, I, um, I opt for a C-section and she, you know, says that's fine if that's what you want to do. And I said, I'm just worried we're going to get in there. You're going to induce me and I'm going to end up in an emergency situation and I can't take one more wild card. You know, we've already had so many hurdles in this pregnancy with all these medical interventions and medical things that like, I can't take not knowing that this kid's not going to be coming out and healthy and all the things. So let's just make it so. So we decide we're going at 37 weeks, we're having this baby, we schedule a C-section, and at that point, you know, obviously still have very high blood pressure. I'm on blood pressure medication, I'm on bed rest, I have high fluid, which is, I guess, a whole thing, who knew? I go in to have my son, oh, so many funny stories on that day too, I guess, maybe for another time, but just, I remember, like, the hospital socks wouldn't even fit. I'm, this is no joke. You know, those like hospital grippy socks. And actually the week of, I went and got a pedicure too. And the pedicure flip-flops, you know, that fit like Sasquatch, they wouldn't fit my feet. And like the hospital socks that also would fit, fit Sasquatch did not even go past my toes. That's how swollen my feet were. I would joke that I was walking like a muffin, like like a like that muffin top, like an uncooked muffin where it would like jiggle. Like like oh, like the top of my foot was like a muffin that was jiggling on a tray when I would walk. It was hilarious, but very uncomfortable. Like no shoes fit me at that point. Like I was so swollen. Like I can't even describe. Um, so yeah, tons of funny stories there. I remember like going to the bathroom while waiting to get prepped for surgery and like I just did a full Britney Spears and like walked in with like bare feet down the hallway into the bathroom. Like, what am I doing? I just like, cause the socks didn't fit and I was just barefoot and I'm like in this like hospital bathroom, like, ew, what am I doing? And then I walk out like bare ass, like showing out the back of my um, gown because they're prepping me for surgery and I'm just like trying to pee real quick because I had to pee all the time, obviously being super pregnant. And actually, even the nurses were like, uh, wow, like you pee a lot. I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. And at that point, I had a catheter and I like begged them to keep it in because it was wonderful not having to just go to the bathroom. It just would come out. It was just amazing. Anyway, so they were really shocked at that. But I walk out of this bathroom like that, just a sight to behold, as you can imagine. And like a, cl a client of mine who I see maybe once a year for a haircut, like not a, someone I know very well. It's like, oh my God, Amy, hi. And I'm just like, oh my God, like, hi, here I am. Like full glory, shoeless, ass out, swollen mess. Hi, what's going on? You know, um, they were trying to get like the piercings out of my ears that are on like fixed posts. And like, I delayed the C-section by like 20 minutes. Cause like it took a whole team of like medical professionals to get tweezers, to get my earrings out. Like it was, and I got this piercing when I was like 19. I'm like, Oh my God, I feel like such an idiot. It was just like, comical. So we go into the surgery and it turns out my son was not only breached that day, but he was breached transverse transverse is when your baby's like wrapped around your midsection like I like picture like his head off to the right side of my stomach and his feet over to the left side of my stomach like he's horizontal but also butt down so breach that's a whole nother problem because if they're cutting you for a c-section they can't cut you a certain like the way that is ideal if they're transverse so she basically is like I'm gonna open you up I'm gonna spin this baby 
to get him true breach. And then I'm going to do the C-section. I'm like, do whatever the hell you want. Just get me this child. So here we are. We're in the surgery. Um, they, you know, my husband's in there. Um, for anyone who has a queasy stomach, you might want to fast forward 15 seconds. Um, he told me that when they cut me open, it sounded like someone threw a sopping wet towel on the floor. I don't remember that. I was numb and out of it and all the things, but I just thought that was very, very funny. And what a great description, right? Um, because I was high fluid. So I guess it just was like fluid everywhere. Um, they pull my son out, they hold him up and they're like healthy, you know, whatever else they said. I don't remember like beautiful, healthy boy or, you know, whatever. And like, we just started sobbing. Like I, I don't even remember because they're just like, we were so still so on edge thinking that we were waiting on another medical diagnosis, you know, and they said healthy and we just lost it. Um, that being said, I remember looking at him and as they held him up over the tarp, you know, for the C-section, the drape or whatever. It should have been a tarp. <laughs> Anyways, um, they hold him up and he's adorable. And I was like, oh my God, he's beautiful. And then blood started coming from his mouth. So there's that visual. That was a fun time. Um, nothing, I guess, to see with that. They were just like, oh, okay. And like took him and like whisked him away to like do the things. And I was sad because, you know, I saw these amazing births where like the baby would be like on your chest after and have skin to skin and all this stuff. But like, listen, you got to do what you got to do, I guess, when you need a medical, you know, birth. So they bring him around all wrapped up like a little burrito and he was beautiful. And he I could tell like his eyes still seemed so wet and he had little bubbles coming from his mouth and he was like breathing. And I didn't get to hold him at all. My husband got to hold him, I'm going to say, for two minutes, maybe like lifted him up kind of like near my chest so I could see him. He didn't have a name yet because um, we wanted to see him first. We had a few on, you know, on our list. And then they come up and say that it looks like he is like kind of aspirating and struggling to breathe, like he has some fluid and that he'll need to go to the NICU. He's not going to be admitted, but he needs to go for observation for a few hours. And I'm kind of like, OK, because I like am not really understanding. And I'm also thinking like that's normal because, again, I've never had a baby before and I'm like under all these drugs and I kind of just like, oh, OK, like you're going to watch him. Cool. You're, I'm going to get sewn up and then I'm going to like have him. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, and then my husband's like, what do I do? And I said, well, you go with our son. And so now I'm being sewn up and all these things and finishing up the C-section. The baby is now gone. Um, my husband is now gone. I'm by myself and they, you know, finish up. They take me into post-op. So post-op is like a, at least at this hospital was like a big open floor with like, you know, just curtains, kind of like an ER, you know, where they like divide you by curtains and I'm telling you this because I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. Here I am in post-op. And I have no idea what my baby looks like. I have no idea what's going on. I still don't really understand why he's gone. And I'm thinking he's going to, like, pop back around at any moment. And my husband's away, and I'm by myself. And my family and my in-laws were waiting in the waiting room. And, like, they can't really see him yet because of the NICU situation. But then, like, I guess maybe one or two could go at a time to, like, peek through or see him or something. And I'm getting, like, text messages from my family about my child. Like, you know, seeing him or pictures or telling me things. And I'm not seeing my child. And that was really, really, um, I don't even know what the word is. Like, difficult to say the least, but, like, 
I feel like there's a better word for it and it's just not coming to me. Um, but yeah, to feel like I just carried this child through all this for nine months and then I'm so confused and I'm feeling so alone in the post-op and to have everybody just telling me about my kid when I haven't even been able to like see him, it just felt really yucky. I don't, I mean, to, like again, to say the least, I don't really know. Um, and then I'm realizing as I'm laying there by myself and I'm like looking at like, you know, my husband had sent me like a picture of him like alone, the baby alone, Vaughn, my son, alone in a incubator, um, laying on his belly. He's not even like washed. He'd not been given a bath. Like he had like just been taken away. Um, I'm just like laying by himself being monitored and being given oxygen and I'm just like, again, just kind of like, okay, everything's going to be okay, right? But like, I'm just very confused. And I'm noticing that all these other, because I can hear everybody because of the curtains, it's not, not rooms. And all of a sudden I'm noticing that there's people next to me and all around me that have just been come out of surgery. And I'm hearing their whole families and they're talking to them. And I'm hearing their babies crying in like, you know, little carriers or whatever next to their beds. And I'm like, oh, do most people just get their baby after birth? <laughs> like, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that I, like, it just, I can't even, it just was such a whirlwind. And so eventually my husband kind of pops in and is kind of explaining what's going on. And the, the NICU was on a totally different floor. So he's like going up and down out of this, you know, elevator. He still has on his operation clothes, like the, like hazmat suit and everything and he said he didn't even realize it that he could like take it off because he again like, he's in a whirlwind too doesn't know what to do he's like I felt terrible I, I had to decide between like my wife or my son you know it was just weird the whole thing was just like I mean obviously if you can relate reach out because like it was just a weird thing um and he's like I was in the general population like central elevators and like everyone's looking at me like did he just come out of surgery? <laughs> he didn't even realize, like, he still like, the boot covers on, like, everything. Like, full suited up, um, which just cracks me up to think about. But anyway, he comes in and, um, yeah, he's just bouncing back and forth. But I was by myself for the majority. I don't even know. I think my family may have come in at one point to be with me for a little bit. Um, but I also remember hearing that, like, family was kind of, like, upset that they couldn't see him. And they were kind of, like you know, had a little chip on their shoulder about it. And I remember like feeling some type of way about that, like feeling bad or it's just so, it's just like, what? I didn't even get to hold my kid. I didn't even get to see my kid. So I'm in post-op. I'm telling them like, I just want to get out of here and hold my baby. And then the nurse says to me, oh honey, I'm just trying to get you not to have a stroke. That's what she says to me. And it was in that moment that I was like, what is she talking about? And she said, your blood pressure is so out of control right now. It's going sky high and then it's dropping so low. And I'm just trying to get you regulated so you don't have a stroke. And we're trying to decide if we have to put you on magnesium. And it's the first time I've realized that, like, this is why I'm hearing this, you know, revolving door of people coming in and out of post-op, staying for an hour and leaving. And someone else comes in with their baby. And I'm listening to everybody with this, like, new baby bliss and their family's coming in, oh, he looks like the dad, and oh, this and that, look at that hair, and and I'm laying there with a picture of my son that was, like, text to me, you know, it, I just, like, can't, it just makes me so emotional, 
Um, so finally, so we had my son around 4.30 in the afternoon. I finally get up to a room and out of post-op at midnight. So that's how long I was by myself. And that is how long I was being monitored for my blood pressure. And the woman basically says to me, she, I, and I kept saying to her, all I want is, she said, can I get you anything? And I just kept saying like, yeah, I want to see my kid. Like, can I come, come in? Can I, you know, can I get you some water? Yeah, I want to see my kid. Like, it was like, I just wouldn't let it up. I was like, I want to see my baby. I want to see my baby. And um, so finally she says to me, she takes me up to the room and she says, if, you know, if you can walk, if I can get you up out of this bed walking, I think because obviously I just had the C-section, she's like, then I'll take you to go see your baby. And I shit you not, I jump out of the bed. I grab my pee bag because I still have a catheter. <laughs> I grab my bag and I stand up and I'm like, and I literally said, like, where are we going? And she's like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, wait, wait. I have to get you a, I have to get you a wheelchair. Okay, wait, hold on a second. I wasn't ready. And I'm thinking to myself, bitch, I will walk all the way to China. Where am I going right now? Like, tell me. I need to see this kid. So we get up into the NICU and it's a whole process. For those of you that don't know, it's like you have to like stop before you get in and like scrub up and like wash up and wash your arms up to your elbows and all this stuff. Now we're used to that because of COVID washing and scrubbing and timing everything. But it was new then. And... You can go in, but only like, you know, three people at max can be in there. And so you can't have everybody in at the same time and all this stuff. So I go in and my husband's been up there with him and he's just laying in this like plastic box with like a hose of oxygen. And he's got, he had fluid in his lungs, it turns out. And they didn't know why. They're like, we don't know if it's like pneumonia or like what it is. So we need to give him antibiotics and we need to like whatever. So I come in there and he's like on all these wires and all these machines and he's got an IV and he's got, you know, whatever. And he's just laying there, this little sweet baby in just a diaper. Hair's like, you know, wet and matted because he never has had his first bath. And he's just laying there on his belly um, because they were trying to get him to get the fluid out. So they didn't want him on his back. And they wheel me up and I see him and she says, you can put your hand in on his head. And the only thing in there with him was that little um, green soothing pacifier. And I reached in and I put my hand on his head. Sorry. He had all this brown hair and I reached my hand in and I put it on his little head and I kind of just rubbed my thumb like back and forth in his hair and the woman the nurse is like oh honey she said you can't do that she said you can't you can't rub you can just place your hand on him and I couldn't hold him and she said, because we're trying to keep his heart rate down, because when he gets worked up, you know, his breathing gets labored. And so she said, we don't want you to stimulate anything. So you can't rub. You can just place your hand on his head. And I was so helpless. That's all I could do, you know. And I got to stay in there for, I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe. <laughs> 
it was already midnight. They're like, well, let's like, you know, he's going to be in here overnight. Let's just get you guys back to your room. And, and I can't tell you, like, you just carry a baby for nearly nine months and then you just like leave them somewhere, which is pretty terrible, terrible feeling. And we just go back in the elevator and go to our separate room and we're on the maternity floor. So I'm like, you know, I didn't hear a lot of babies, but you could hear a little bit because um, we were kind of off to like a quieter end. The hospital was bumping. It was wild. It was like that period in August of 17, 2017, where um, they there was like a lunar eclipse or solar eclipse, something like I think it was solar, actually. And like a full moon and all this stuff. And like babies were just coming in hot. It was wild. It was just like they were packed to the brim. Um, so that night we tried to sleep. And I'm not kidding you. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine that I did not sleep. I think I maybe got 45 minutes of sleep. Um, I just was laying there. And um, I was just so heartbroken and devastated. And... Um, worried I could call up to the floor and ask what he was doing and they would tell me but I didn't want like it's funny because like so much of the stuff I cared so much about what everybody thought of me you know so I'm trying not to call too much because I don't want to be that guy I don't want to annoy somebody and I'm like oh my god I think about it now and I'm just like who cares um and I remember like this is so sad but I was laying there thinking um like singing like lullabies in my head <laughs> and hoping that like by some act of telepathy <laughs> which doesn't even make any sense um that he could hear him so he knew that we didn't just abandon him and I think about this a lot because um my with him having his sensory issues it's like his first touch was in, like it was in a plastic cube on a hospital blanket and needles being poked into his feet for blood and for ivs and for food and that his first soothing that he ever felt was a pacifier and that he ingested fluid on the way out and after he was home he screamed and screamed for nine months in, in the bath we tried everything to make him more comfortable and I remember saying to Tom he looks like he just is like panicking he was an infant that was like panicking in the water. And I remember talking to my, um, his occupational therapy, um, therapist about it just like in the last year. And she said to me, did he swallow any fluid at birth? And I remember saying no. And then I sat there and I go, what the fuck am I talking about? Yes. <laughs> so that's literally why he was in the NICU because he, he like inhaled fluid or was like in his lungs. And she said, yeah, the body doesn't forget. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about in the podcast before about like the somatic trauma that your body stores. And I just, I don't, I don't blame myself really. But 
to know that, like, for him to feel like he's a very high pain tolerance and he loves to, like, jump and crash into things and that, like, that deep pressure. And I think, well, yeah, his first touch was needles being shoved into his foot. And he still to this day has, like, an oral thing where he loves to chew on things and he hums all the time and things like that. And I think, yeah, his only, his only regulation was a pacifier. And you wonder how much of that is, like, him carrying it through, you know? Whew. So anyway, he's in the NICU. I was trying to telepathically send him lullabies that I was singing in my head. And I just, um, it was so devastating. I just couldn't sleep. I just was so, you know, I just felt like I just, my heart was outside of my body. It was on a different floor than me. I couldn't, I just felt so helpless. Like that feeling of just like pure helplessness it was so, so, so hard. And then he was in the NICU and, you know, that was another thing. And so the next day we went, I mean, God, I think we went at like seven or something in the morning. It was like the second it opened or, you know, we, they could have visitors or whatever it was. I don't remember now. And I just remember talking to the nurse and I, I, mean, I like just straight up like bullied her, which is funny because it's so not me. I'm like the most non-confrontational person that exists. And I remember saying like, like I'm holding my kid. Like, I'm holding my kid today. And she kind of was like, well, and I'm like, oh, okay, but I'm going to hold him. <laughs> um, and she let me. And she wasn't really supposed to. But she let me, and she let me hold him, and I had to hold the oxygen, like, up to his nose. And I got to do, like, skin to skin. And But, like, mind you, I'm doing all of this, like, in, like, the open, like, framework of the NICU floor with all these other babies around. They're, you don't get a private room or like right next to like the soiled linens you know so glamorous um and it was just kind of crazy because speaking of somatic trauma I never anticipated a NICU stay I don't think anybody does you know my brother was in the PICU for six months and so I was no stranger to the machines and the beeps and the sounds and if you know anybody that has dealt with any of that, the beeps, it's like, I just, I don't know what it is about those friggin' beeps. <laughs> the machine beeps, it's just, uh, it just like pierces your soul. And the thing about the NICU is that all the monitors, you know, you have your own monitor. So I could look up and see how his oxygen level was, his saturation and his breathing and his heart rate and all those things. And that's how I like learned if my baby was okay. And when somebody else in that same floor, in that same pod in the NICU, if they're having like a crisis or something is majorly wrong, that alarm will not only sound on their screen, that, that child's personal screen, but also all the screens of all the monitors of every child in the NICU on that pod. And so every time the alarm would sound, which happens relatively frequently, and I'll, I promise you there were kids in there that were much longer than him that were seemingly way worse or more touch and go than him. And that's the crazy thing too, that like, I mean, we made it out and we were only there a couple of days and it's like, there are kids in there that don't. And it just, oh, I can't even, just can't. Um, 
but when those alarms would sound and just the panic looking up at your screen going, oh, is it mine? Please don't be mine, you know? And that was like, I, you know, the power was taken away from me early. My mama instinct was taken away because I just had to check the screens to see how he was doing all the time. And luckily, because of my blood pressure and my situation, independently of my child, I was in the hospital for, you know, a couple of days, too. And so we ended up not having to leave the hospital without him, which was wonderful because I know a lot of people that are not that lucky. So he was in the NICU for two days, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And that's something that I wrestle with also because I know a lot of people that have had it a lot worse. And I know that doesn't negate my story, um, but it does sometimes make me feel like, do I have the right to be this bothered or this traumatized? And then I realize that trauma is not about what happened to you in a singular moment. Trauma is like the way it compounds with everything else that's led up to that moment. So all the stuff I have stored in my body that I thought I had reckoned with, with things with my brother when he was sick, when he was in the hospital, being right back there in a state of helplessness, but now I'm watching my child go through things like that. I cannot explain to you how horrifying it was and how triggering it was for me and how quickly the feelings of panic and confusion and helplessness and hopelessness like come rushing back especially when it's your little baby laying there helpless there were so many times where we would have to walk out of the NICU and leave him in there screaming because I would yell at the nurses and say do something do something he's hungry he's screaming and they would say honey we can't take him out of the oxygen he has to stay in there he has to stay in that little cube and I couldn't stand there with the discomfort of watching him scream and hit the sides of the box that he was in. And so I would just have to leave him because I couldn't help him. And it was really horrible. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. It's funny because my therapist would be so proud of me right now. Look at me feeling my feelings. <laughs> This is getting so long also. I did not anticipate this episode to be this long. Um, so then we get my son home after three days. And I remember when we got home from the hospital that first night, we were both laying on two couches in our living room. And we put him in the middle of us, like in his little rock and play, which yes, is recalled now. So don't do that. But like a little bassinet. And... We tried to go to sleep and then my husband like rolled over and happened to look up and he saw me and I was sitting on the edge of the couch staring, just sitting by myself in the dark. I wasn't sleeping and I was just staring at him and he's like, are you okay? And I just busted out into tears. I said, how do we know if he's breathing? And how do we know if he's going to be okay? Because for, you know, the whole time I had a monitor telling me that he had 100% oxygen saturation or whatever. And now I'm home with this baby and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm feeling so traumatized and so triggered. Completely helpless. 
not able to, you know, I'm feeling like I can't, I don't know what to do because I don't have that monitor to tell me if he's okay. And just like the, um, the heaviness of that situation was weighing on me. Like he has to be okay. What if he's not? What if he dies? And that thought of what if he dies still to this day is something I wrestle with because it's where my head goes. But also it's something that I thought every single day. It wasn't until he was a year old when I was showering for his birthday party. And I was thinking about something and I thought it might not be normal, <laughs> quote unquote, that every time I think of something with my son, I instantly wonder, is he going to die? What if he dies? I remember going in for his, his vaccinations. We are pro-vax, pro-science. And I would say to the doctor, okay, you know we're going to get him vaccinated, but can you remind me why I'm doing this again? And she would say, Amy, remember, like, it's it's not tied to autism. And I would say to her, oh, I don't care about autism. I said, that's not what I care about. I said, I want you to tell me that he's not going to die. And I remember her kind of looking at me like, what? <laughs> like, no one's worried about that. You know, they're worried about all these other claims. But when you hear about what happens as a side effect to, you know, vaccinations, it could be encephalitis, it could be all these things. And that's what my brother had. You know, and I just was like, I need to know that I'm not going to make, I'm not going to like rock in the boat and it's going to be fatal. You know, that's just like, it's like, it was like the staple of my existence um, for at least that first year. But I, when I tell you that we still have a video monitor in my four and a half year old son's room and every single night before I fall asleep, I zoom in on his chest to make sure he's breathing. I am not lying to you. It's kind of embarrassing to admit, but it is what it is. So that was how I got propelled into motherhood. That's the story. Um, from that point on, it was very apparent that my son was high needs. He was the contact napper. He slept two to three hours stretches. Then maybe it was like three to four hour stretches. Didn't sleep through the night for a long, long time. And then maybe he did sleep through the night for about two years of his life. And now he's back at a four and a half year old waking up at least once a night. Um, the only way he took a nap was if he laid on my body. And because he was such an energetic, ornery, colicky, refluxy child to get some peace of mind and to give myself a break, I held him for every single one of his naps. And I was like a nap prisoner. And as much as I... It was like a weird love-hate because I, I now I barely get to snuggle him at all because he doesn't nap. And I knew that I would, you know, miss it one day. But um, that was hard because I, I, I became kind of a shell because I didn't have any downtime. You know, I never really had to get any time to do anything for myself or take care of myself the way I needed because I was essentially just sitting, you know, in a, in a rocker. I mean, I would take a lot of naps with him, which was nice, but... And I just kept telling myself, like, at that point, I had, a, I had a feeling even the first week when I brought him home that we weren't going to have any more kids. I just remember feeling so grateful to have him home and have him living and have him medically healthy after everything that we had been through. That the idea of rolling the dice again, even, you know, the first week he was home already felt like, yeah, I'm not so, not so into that. 
And then with him being the kind of child that he was with all the other, you know, high needs. And now I know it's sensory processing stuff. And I, and I know that now, but had I not, I didn't know that then. And so a lot of my early motherhood was like the shame of why is my kid so different? Why am I, you know, am I doing something wrong? What else does he need? Why can't I figure out his needs? These other kids could just like sit in a high chair with like, you know, a rice cake for an hour and my kid won't even sit in a high chair. Like anything that felt containing to him, um, he hated baby carriers. Um, if we stopped at a stop sign, literally, even if I was driving like a block to the mailbox, if I stopped at a stop sign, he'd start crying. He hated the car seat. The hardest he ever cried ever was in the bath. He would scream and scream and scream until he was like raspberry color and like almost like a breathless cry. His little hands would be in fists. His eyes would be panicking. And now I realize it's because he felt out of control, you know, especially with what had happened to him his first couple days of life, which is just crazy. And like it, it makes me sick and it breaks my heart that that's the way that my child had to enter the world, that it was like this traumatic thing and I do, it's like, I feel guilty because it's like, it should have had to be that way, but I also don't because I know that like there was no other option really. Um, but yeah, I mean, the mom guilt is real, right? I mean, I think we all can attest to that. Um, but yeah, it just, it just was a lot. And yeah, he had reflux, he would puke all the time and um, just would cry all the time. And he just, he was very fussy and do exactly what he wanted and he needs a teether oh but not that one and not this or oh he wants to be you know I have to get up and move him around oh but don't stand over there you got to go over here and it just was like he was so particular and we rocked him to sleep and it was like you know he had to be held on this certain side and this certain way and bounced in this motion and we'd sing the same song over and over and over and the loudest sound machine and like all these things and I would see these other kids that were so chill and I was like is my kid broken? Am I broken? What is going on? Clearly I had postpartum anxiety. Um, I just remember even like going on a walk the first time I took him around my neighborhood, which is like a wonderful neighborhood. And I remember thinking like every car that drove by, I was like, someone's going to take us. Someone's going to take him. Someone's going to take me. I, it just was like the weirdest thing. And I think it was just like this feeling of like, but I got triggered when I was in the hospital, just like this feeling of like helplessness and like panic. I just felt so panicked. And at that point in my life, I didn't realize how profound anxiety was in my life, you know? So that obviously plays into it too. Um, it's just a lot. It's just a lot. And I remember like I had cousins and I had kids around the same age, like within a couple of months of each other. And you know, they could just kind of like go about their lives and incorporate their child into their life. And I couldn't even do that. Like, I just, I remember going to the same parties with them and like, I was the other, like, I remember I would have to eat really quick because my husband would have to be up walking around bouncing my child so he didn't start screaming. And then like, I would finish my food really quick and then like go take over on the baby that he would eat separately. And like, it's, that's the kind of like way that we lived for so long because he was so disgruntled and so inconsolable. I remember my sister saying she like was at a baby shower and she was holding a baby on her lap while she was just like eating lunch and like playing games. And she goes, Amy, I sat and held this baby for like an hour and it like barely even made a peep. I think it was like chewing on its own hand or something. It didn't even have a toy. And she goes, I remember with Vaughn, I would have to like 
be up bouncing rocking moving singing giving him a toy giving him another toy giving him a bottle a pacifier I'm like oh yeah and I guess it was validating in a way to have her say that because I'm like it wasn't just me I'm not just crazy right like we had a difficult baby but when you don't know you don't know you know so what do I do of course with my you know low self-esteem is I start judging myself and what are we doing wrong what's wrong with my kid and comparison or comparison compar- uh, comparing <laughs> Oh, Lord, I think my brain is tired from this long podcast. Uh, I just, I have so much more to say about it. Um, So many more stories I can get into. But I think I'm going to leave it at that for tonight because I know that was pretty heavy. It was heavy for me and I got to blow my nose. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Um, Hopefully that gives you a little bit of like a backstory of why, what I was catapulted into and why parenthood for me has been sort of an uphill battle. It's the best battle. It has given me more laughs and joy and love and insight and growth than I could ever, 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 ever could have seen coming. But I thought I was like a kid expert. You know, I taught dancing for so many years. I nannied. I babysat. I was, I was good to go. And then I never could have ever seen my journey. I've never met a kid like my son. I've never, I could have never read enough books that would have prepared me for everything that I had to overcome, especially in those early days, especially in that first year. And it's just, it's still there. It's just morphing. And I'm just doing the work day to day to try to be the best person for myself, heal my trauma, show up for him and be the support that he needs for his his very individual needs, which are very many. And that's just my life. And I'm good with that. He's my biggest teacher. Reach out. Let me know about your stories. Let me know what resonates for you. Um, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me the space and the platform to do this work and to share with you because it is truly cathartic and it changes my life and it warms my soul. And hearing your stories just help me feel not so alone. And I hope that that's what my story does for you. Reach out at grow.up.ig or at thegrowuppod at gmail.com. And until next time, keep doing the work. I'm so proud of you. And talk to you soon. Bye-bye.